made me smile. A young man entered an abbey in hopes of becoming a brother. The abbot cautioned him that the life in the abbot is difficult, abbey is difficult, and that it is a particular order that they take a vow of silence. You can only speak two words every five years. So the man agreed and took his vows very seriously. Five years passed, and he went before the man in charge, and he said, food cold. <laughs> and the brother said, well, I'll see if I can resolve that problem. And then five more years passed, and he said, bed hard. And uh, got him a different mattress. Another five years passed, and he said, I'm leaving. And the brother said, well, I'm not surprised. You've done nothing but complain since you've been here. finishing this great book of Esther. It's been a joy to study. Our last time we were together, we saw the amazing turn of events when the evil plot of Ham Haman is exposed to the king by Esther. Remember the scene? They throw something over his head and they drag him out and he's hung on the gallows he had designed for Mordecai. So the words and deeds of what people do don't instantly vanish just because they pass away. As a matter of fact, many people continue to suffer from memories of someone who brought them harm or pain, even though they're long dead. And even though this evil enemy of the Jewish people was now put to death, the horrific decree that he instituted was still in effect. His plan to slaughter all the Jewish people on that specific day still stood. This foolish and arrogant uh, law of Persian kings that they could never make a mistake so nothing could be revoked is the reason that it had to stand. So because of this, the 13th day of Adar was still set as the day of annihilation. We have seen the providence of God at work in every chapter we have studied in this book. And even though it appeared all was lost, it looked like evil was in control. It was God who intervened and rescued to preserve the nation of Israel. Had he not intervened, there would have been no Jewish Messiah born and we would still be lost and dead in our sins. So we need to see the big picture here and how it has dire consequences for all of human history, redemptive human history, had not God intervened. So as we begin chapter eight, we see the scene is the same as what it was in chapter seven. Haman had just been taken away and executed by order of the king. <clears throat> so we see God's deliverance. We read, on that day, so it's still the day uh, that all these things have happened, King Ahasuerus gave the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, to Queen Esther. And Mordecai became before the king, and for Esther had disclosed to him who he was to her. And the king took off the signet ring, which he had taken from Haman and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. The king now has some serious plans to take care of. <clears throat> Haman is considered a criminal for his actions. Therefore, the king had the right to confiscate his property, which he then gave over to Esther. And Esther promptly um, asked her father slash cousin to oversee that for her. Maybe the king thought this gift would be something that to help atone for some of the misery she had been suffering emotionally. 
Then the king promoted Esther's father, cousin, to the highest position in the land. Esther had revealed her own nationality, we saw that in chapter 7, and now she is proud to tell the king of her special relationship to Mordecai. Suddenly the king and Mordecai are extended family. They're connected by this marriage. <clears throat> the king continues to honor Mordecai by giving him the signet ring he had just made sure was pulled off the ring of Haman before being executed. <clears throat> this was huge for him to have this ring because as you recall, the ring pressed in wax, sealed anything into law under the Persian law. So Esther, as I said, decided to have Mordecai oversee the property on her behalf of all that belonged to Haman. What an amazing turn of events in just a few moments of time. Be not deceived, God is not mocked. What for, for whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. And this came really fast. Now the very ring that was once in the possession of Haman <clears throat> has been given to the man he utterly despised, Mordecai. And Mordecai, and this same ring, is what is going to be used to save the Jewish nation. Haman had been the prime minister, and now it's Mordecai in that place. And who has the power over all of Haman's possessions? Mordecai. It was Haman who planned on confiscating all the property of the Jewish people after they annihilated them, but it was his property that was given away to a Jewish man. <clears throat> God can overcome and overrule any obstacle. Now Mordecai has been given a position to do something about the plight of his people. And that brings us to Esther in verse 3 through 6. Then Esther spoke again to the king, fell at his feet, wept, and implored him to avert this evil scheme of Haman the Agagite and his plot which he has devised against the Jews. The king extended the golden scepter to Esther. So Esther arose and stood before him. And then she said, if it pleases the king, and if I have found favor before him, and the matter seems proper to the king, and I am pleasing in his sight, let it be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, which he wrote to destroy the Jews, or in all of the king's provinces, where how can I endure to see the calamity which will befall my people, and how can I endure to see the destruction of my kindred? You know, Esther has been given wealth, prestige, highest place of, of women could attain in that culture. But here she is, burdened for her people. She is not done interceding for the situation here for her people. And she's before, she's on the ground before the king, weeping, pleading for his help. The king holds out the golden scepter. I don't believe this was a second event where she left and didn't get called and came back. I think this is the same day, same time. She's on the floor weeping before the king. The scepter could be used to just say, go ahead, speak. What is it that you want me to do for you? <clears throat> so he um, is encouraging her to speak, and she stands in solidarity with her people, pleading for the lives of all the Jews. She realizes that she is in a good position today at this moment with the king in his eyes, and so she asks him to revoke the work of Haman. She's careful, you notice, to not blame the king in any of this, even though, you know, he went along with it. It is Haman's responsibility alone for this plot. And so she's asking for the impossible by pleading with the king, telling him she couldn't endure this kind of suffering for all her people to be wiped out. Esther was a queen who had everything 
money and wealth and position could buy. Yet she, as I said, identifies with her people and is going to do all in her power to bring help and relief to the Jewish people. And as Mordecai and Esther stand there before the king, he responds to her by saying, Behold, I have given the house of Haman to Esther, and him they have hanged in the gallows because he stretched out his hands against the Jews. Now you write to the Jews as you see fit in the king's name and seal it with the king's signet ring for the decree which is written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's signet ring may not be revoked. It was kind of a two-sided coin. I really can't do anything about the first decree, but you can work on another one. And so here we are seeing how God is over, able to overrule the stupidity of a Persian law that declares nothing can be revoked. So in verses 9 through 14, we see a second decree written. It's only the third month of the year, and which would give the Jewish people almost nine months to prepare for what's coming. And the second decree was to be sent out, just as the first one was done, into every province and every language and every part of the empire. And we read that it said that the king granted the Jews who were in each and every city the right to assemble, to defend their lives, to destroy, and to kill and annihilate the entire army of any people or province which might attack them, including children and women and the plunder, the plunder, the spoil. So God made a way for the first decree to be challenged by his mighty work of providence by lining up everything so that it's Esther and Mordecai in this position of political power and advantage. The second decree was written in, as I said, every language in the empire and then sent out on the best horses as the first was done. Some who read this section have a problem with Mordecai that he would issue a decree that would um, instigate death even of women and children as well as plundering the material of these people's possessions. But we need to remember that Esther and Mordecai are not New Testament Christians in a local church. There, there is a huge problem when people do not make a distinction between Old Testament Israel and the New Testament church. They are not one in the same, though most of Christendom does not agree with that. <clears throat> the whole purpose of this new decree was to counteract the first one point by point. If you've ever read or studied the Old Testament, then you know that God has used men like Moses and Joshua and the judges and different kings. He has used them to bring judgment, divine judgment, on different Gentile nations. I thought one author put it well. He said, if God has chosen to use Israel occasionally as a destructive instrument against those who reject the true God, and has chosen to use the church as a peaceful instrument to call out a people for his name from among the Gentile nations. That is his sovereign and righteous decision. One divine action and method is no more or less spiritual than the other." End of quote. So as this new decree was sent out, we read that Mordecai went out from the presence of the king, but we notice now he goes out in royal robes of blue and white, with a large crown of gold on his, and a garment of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. So for the Jews, there was light and gladness and joy and honor. There was gladness and joy for the, for the Jewish people, a feast and a holiday. And we read, and many among the people of the land 
became Jews, for the dread of the Jews had fallen on them. Very interesting. The people of Susa see Mordecai come out decked in this royal robe that was worn only by a prime minister. These are not likely the robes that he was uh, wearing when Haman rode him all around the town being honored because these now were official robes of a prime minister and the crown, the word crown is really better translated, a turban, a gold turban on his head. And everyone can see now the tables have turned. The Jewish people are actually in favor with the king. The joy spoken of here is complete contrast to the first decree. Remember, everybody's in confusion, despair, distress. It is likely that the crowds in Susa were quite relieved to be rid of the pompous, arrogant, angry, obnoxious Haman. I'm sure he had more than a few that disliked him. And in his place is Mordecai. However, for the Jewish people, there was light and gladness and joy and honor. The idea of the word light I read as a picture of prosperity and of well-being. There had been intense sorrow and weeping and grief, and now that sorrow is lifted. The people now have hope. I think most of us here have been through experiences in our life of sorrow and of mourning. Yet when we know the Lord, there is the promise of hope. But things aren't going to stay the same. There is a future and a hope. As the psalmist said, weeping may last for the night, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. And we know, according to Revelation, that one day all tears will be wiped away in the future. That will be something totally of the past. What a great day. What happened, though, on this day for the Jewish people brought them such hope and joy because God has made sure the people are not going to be annihilated. And we know through all of history with the Jewish people, there's always been a remnant within the whole uh, group of people known as Jewish people. There's always been a remnant of believers. <clears throat> and the best is yet to come for them. The joy of this sp a special day would soon become celebrated some eight months in the future as an annual feast. However, the impact of all that had been going on was a cause for many pagan Gentiles who worshipped whatever gods they worshipped to turn and embrace the God of Israel. That's rather stunning. Even pagan people looked around and said, hmm, this just can't be chance. The God of this Jewish people is protecting them. This expression, the God of the Jews, was uh, this expression was many of them became Jews is only found here in the Old Testament. We know that there were proselytes as individuals, but there was a big turning here at the time of Esther. And that makes sense because we just studied Acts, and we saw numerous times men like Cornelius and others connected to the synagogue, pagans who were God, I mean, Gentiles who were God-fearers of the Jewish people. So that's what happened here in this empire. God was delivering Israel, and those who were observing it were really impacted by that. So the Jews are victorious and Perm is instituted. We see the fateful day of finally arrived. World War II, it was D-Day. I call this P-Day for Perm. It's Perm Day, the 13th day of it there. And on that day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, it was turned to the contrary so that the Jews themselves gained the mastery over those who hated them. The Jewish people had been preparing the past summer fall 
and winter for a never-to-be-forgotten day in their history. Again, there is no reference to God in this book, and there's no reference to his providentially doing all these things. Uh, God did not identify himself with this book as the nation at this time was disobedient, except for a few back in the land. But you know what? He still defends, he still protects, because he made a covenant with Abraham. So does God still preserve the Jewish people today? Absolutely. Go back to 1948 and the miracle of them even being back in the land. And then you think about the modern day example, well, modern relatively speaking, depending on your age, uh, 1967, it's called the Six Day War. Syria, Jordan, and Egypt all were about to launch a major attack on Israel to annihilate them. And Israel chose a preemptive strike. I'm sure they weren't realizing God's direction necessarily in their military plans, but three nations against one little nation and the war was over in just a couple of days. One writer put, astonishing was the only word for it. In 60 hours, the war that exploded upon the Middle East became a fact of history. Tiny Israel stood in the role of victor over the surrounding Arab nations that had vowed to exterminate her. Middle Eastern alliances, balances of power, even political boundaries were of, new, of a new shape as though mutated by a biblical cataclysm. Seldom in military history has victory been so efficient or so visibly decisive in such a short span of time. So swiftly did Israel amount her assault that her adversaries were deprived of the means of winning almost before the world was awakened to the fact that a war was in progress. The Israelis experienced an ecstasy which is given to few gener people in, for any generation to know. So, there is nothing new under the sun. You know, listen to the news today, you got the same rhetoric going on. Just different names, different names of countries, same thing going on. The same hateful sentiments against the Jewish people continue today. And we talked about that. Obviously, the source is sat satanic. Satan hates what God loves. Satan wants to um, interrupt God's prophetic plan and timetable, tried to stop, you know, Moses being on the scene, and you just go through all of the history of the Jewish people, Jesus, Herod having the babies killed, and on and on and on it goes. And he still is at work today because he wants to mess up the end times if he can, but he won't. Prophetic scripture tells us all the nations of the world will one day gather together and it will be quite a horrific scene as they all gather to destroy the nation of Israel led by the Antichrist, the end of the tribulation. But that's when Jesus Christ returns to this earth as ju he judges all the nations. As Revelation tells us, he treads the winepress of the wrath of God. It will be like a bloodbath. Then, all the Jewish people still alive at that moment will be saved. According to Romans 9, 10, 11, those who are alive at that time will finally realize Jesus is their Messiah. That is the future. But as we look at this past attempt to destroy God's chosen people, we see God clearly intervened here on their behalf. Certainly the decree sent out by Haman had either created more anti-Semitism or else fanned the flames that already existed of anti-Semitism. <clears throat> so instead of victory for the Jews' enemies, uh, instead of victory for the Jews' enemies, it was the Jews who gained mastery over the, those who hated them. And no one could stand before them, for the dread of them had fallen on all the people. 
The Persian government was not giving support to any of the armies of people who gathered to kill the Jews. We see in verse 3 that even all of the princes of the provinces and others in government for the king actually assisted the Jews because the dread of Mordecai had fallen on them. Obviously, it would be a foolish political move to join in attacking the Jewish people when the king and the government officials high up were of a different mindset. So this assistance to the Jews could have come by way of financial help, military help, moral support, cheering them on, we're not really told. <clears throat> so the author of this book points out all of the human help doesn't say anything about the Lord God of Israel and obviously his help. We see in verse 5 that the Jews struck all of their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying, and they did, they did what they pleased to those who hated them. <clears throat> For the individuals who had hated the Jews, they had band together as the first decree had allowed them to do so, to kill the Jews. They had a legal opportunity to kill the people they hated. However, it was the Jewish people who did as they pleased to their enemies. Perhaps some Jewish communities were given help, as they said, by authorities and not limited to just a self-defense situation, but they were able to pursue those who had been hostile to them. But I remind you that this is a book about God preserving his people so that his word would be true so that the Messiah would come, so that you and I would be blessed from the seed of Abraham. All the families of the earth will be blessed because of someone coming from Abraham. Spotlight on the city of Susa tells us in verse 6 that 500 enemies of the Jews were killed, including ten of the ten sons of Haman, who must have been pretty ticked for the last nine months, you know, having their dad up on the gallows nine months previously. And not to mention everything of theirs taken away and given to Mordecai and Esther. That had to be a bitter pill as well in the moments they learned that. So in Susa, a second day is granted to the Jews. And the king learned of the 500 killed and wondered about the results in the rest of his provinces. He spoke to Esther and asked her if she had any other petition. Uh, that he would grant her whatever she asked. And so in verse 13, Esther asked that the next day also be granted to the Jews in Susa to carry out this edict. And also she asked for Haman's 10 sons to be hanged on the gallows. <clears throat> we don't know, really know her motives, we're not really told. I suspect that she got wind of others in the city who still wanted to kill the Jews who were not taken out yet. And so she asked for another day and she puts the 10 sons of Haman, make sure they're impaled on the gallows as a a very vivid picture of what is going to happen to those who want to kill the Jews. So it brought the anti-Semitism in Susa to an end. It is God protecting the Jewish people, even from other enemies they weren't aware of maybe that first day of the um, war. So the Jews in Susa gathered on the 14th day and they killed 300 more with enemies. But notice in each of these cases, no plunder was taken. Verses 16 through 18, we read that these verses, what was going on in the rest of the country, of, of the king's provinces, that the Jewish people had killed 75,000 of their enemies, taking no plunder. Though they had the right to take the plunder, they all chose not to do this because they were hoping that the purity of their motives would be seen by all. This was not about getting even. This was not about getting wealth from their enemies. This was about staying alive. <clears throat> the next day was a day of rest for all the rest of the Jews, 
The 14th was a day then of great feasting and rejoicing. And this became a holiday as the joyful Jewish survivors made it a day of feasting and sending food portions to each other. And that brings us to the national holiday that's declared by Mordecai and Esther in the rest of this chapter 20 through 32. As Mordecai collected all the facts and figures and chronicled them in their chronicles of events, <clears throat> he then sends out letters to all the Jews everywhere telling them to celebrate the 14th day of the month of Adar every year. Even though Susa had extended their fighting to another day, there was not to be two distinct holidays. But every Jew everywhere should celebrate the first Feast of Perm on that day. As you recall, the word per uh, means lots, or what we would think of as dice. This feast called Purim was because it recognized that the lots were simply an instrument in God's hand. You know, Haman was so suspicious, got to have everything lined up with the stars, you know, all the dice. And that's going to be his direction of when to do this big annihilation. And it's God controlling the dice. It's almost a year out. Amazing what God did. The author of this book continues to highlight all the rest of the events in a summary form. And then there's another letter sent by Esther and Mordecai confirming the first letter to celebrate Purim annually. And there was then given further instructions of how to do that. So letters were sent out to every province with words of peace and truth to establish these days of Purim at their appointed times, just as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had established for them and for their descendants with instructions for their times of fasting, their lamentations, and the command of Esther established these customs for Purim. And so, <clears throat> it is followed to this very day among Jewish people. Uh, I read a little bit about how it goes. For those celebrating this special day on the eve of Purim, Jewish people gather together in their synagogue and hear the reading of the book of Esther. And then it is read a second time, the day of Purim in the morning service. And all from grandparents to the youngest children are required to sit and listen to the book of Esther being read. When Haman's name is mentioned, all the children in the congregation shake their noisemakers and boo and stamp their feet to blot out his name and his memory. And then the, also the Jewish community has a festive dinner in the afternoon celebrating the joyous deliverance of the Jewish people. Children often wear costumes or carnivals at the synagogue. Uh, foods are such as, this doesn't sound exciting to me, such as boiled uh, beans, peas, and hamantashens, hamantashens, which sometimes are called Haman's ears, are eaten at Purim. Hamantashen is just a triangular-shaped pastry filled with poppy seed, prune, and or other fillings. This could be a windy gathering. I don't know what I'm saying. <laughs> Maybe get some fruit in there other than uh, beans, peas, and prunes. Uh, but anyway, secondly, it is required that each person send portions to, of foods to their friends and to their uh, neighbors. And at least two items, fruit, candy, or baked goods, are sent to individuals, usually the children taking the food. And then thirdly, it's required that each person give gifts to two poor people. Even poor people are required to do this as well. So the week that we began our study in Esther was the week of Purim, the day before we started. It was when our Jewish neighbors celebrated. You know what? As believers, we have reason to celebrate as we see the awesome power of God in display in this amazing book. God sovereignly at work behind all the scenes, working through his providence in mundane, everyday life to accomplish what he is going to get done. 
He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is great. He is awesome. He is powerful. He is worthy of our worship. He is worthy of our trust. This is who he is. This is how he works. So chapter 10 then speaks of the greatness of Mordecai. We read that the official Persian records give tribute to the once hated Mordecai. He's risen to this revered uh, position by fellow Jews and everybody else in government. Xerxes then required an empire-wide taxation and the country prospered. Mordecai was second only to the king, Ahasuerus, and great among the Jews and in favor with his many kinsmen who sought the good of his people and one who spoke for the welfare of his whole nation. What an amazing man that God moved into government. <clears throat> the book ends similar to how it began, speaking of the powerful Xerxes. However, now it is Mordecai in the position of influence, not Haman. All due to the working of God through his providence, only God could elevate a despised, hated Jew who was in exile because of his disobedient nation to be in a place of such honor. And that really brings us to how this applies to us. You know, we're told in Romans that all scripture is written in previous times for our instructions so that we might be encouraged and have hope. And that's really what this book does. It does bring courage. It does bring hope. If we took the time, we took the time rather to study this book because it shows us that God overrules Satan's attempts to destroy Israel. God is all powerful. He can overrule even when it looks like evil has complete charge. Had Haman succeeded, as I said, we would still be lost in our sins. No Jewish survivors, no Messiah. You know what? This, verse, this book teaches us that God keeps his word. Therefore, we have reason to hope. So the promises that God has made to the church, we can believe, we can hope, they are real, they will happen and be fulfilled. God is in control. He's working behind the scenes to accomplish his will. As it's been mentioned, history is his story. And pretty soon in the future, us sitting here today are history. A Persian queen is banished due to being asked to do something humility, humiliating before a bunch of drunk men. A bunch of drunk men freak out. All the women are going to act like her. They depose her, Vashti, and make this other new law, which then brings in uh, a queen, and God just moves through the harem. It makes her in a place of honor and recognition, moves her in to be queen. A demented man filled with hatred from Satan ends up dead. While the many hated, many hated, exalted. A decree that would have destroyed all of the Jews is overruled, and instead over 76,000 of their enemies are killed. Only God could make all of that happen. Well, I know we are not Israel, and we are not queens, even of our little sphere, <clears throat> let alone an empire. But the truths displayed in this book have been preserved by God for our benefit and for our learning. When it seems that evil overrules good in your life, when foolish people take actions that bring you harm, when circumstances seem to leave us desperate, without an answer, without any hope, without any possible solution, God is still on his throne. He is still in control. You have to believe that. We must trust him even in the darkest night. It was a dark time in Israel's history, and we individually have dark times in our life. But there will be a joy in the morning for all those who have a relationship with God through his son. 
He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So take courage from all that we have learned in our study of this book. Even sleepless nights have a purpose. Even failure to be recognized or appreciated by others has a purpose, conforming us to the image of Christ. There is no detail too small in your life that God is not involved with it. People failing to do their job, people overlooking a lab report, people making you go to war for everything with insurance. I mean, you know, life on this planet is tedious. <laughs> and everything is difficult. But we can praise him because he is great and he is on the throne. Praise him for keeping his word. <clears throat> we see that he kept his word to Israel. He will keep his word to Israel. So we know he will keep his word to the church. And I don't know the heart of each one of you here today, but I do know that Jesus bore the wrath of God for sinners like you and me. If you see the fact that you are a sinner, that just the fact that you've lived your life how you want to live it, independent of God, doing what you want to do to make you happy, all the laws that you've broken by not obeying your parents when you were little, by not obeying whatever authority in your life, by your rebellious, self-centered attitude, all of that puts us separated from a holy God who has wrath and hatred of sin. And Jesus Christ bore that wrath in our place on the cross. We can only come to God in the merits of Jesus Christ. And I hope that if you're here today and you have not called on him, turn from your sin and call on him to forgive you, that you won't let another day go by. This great God can be your personal Savior and great God. And then you have hope in this life, as insane as it is, and hope in the life to come. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this amazing book that you allowed us to study. I pray that we will not forget when we are in the dark nights, the hopeless nights, where it seems like you are silent and not answering what we're asking you to do. Lord, help us to remember how you work behind the scenes and that you are never silent. You are always doing to accomplish your will because you can take even the evil and make it work for good. We thank you that you are that powerful and that sovereign that you can do that. In Jesus' name.